Season 2, Episode 8, Hauntings. Don't talk, just listen. October of the sixth year be the black sun, Rosie Jackson endeavored to catch a ghost. The impetus had been with her for years before the action was undertaken, since back before the city vanished from our world of blue skies and green grass and into the strange land of the gray slate sky and the midnight desert. Rosie had long believed that there was more to the world than that which we allow ourselves to perceive. As a child, she was possessed by the strong conviction that there was surrounding her a presence, undefinable, but very much actually there. Many children experienced this sensation, but Rosie Jackson never lost it. The sensation intensified after the passing of her Aunt Allison, into whose care Rosie had been charged after both her mother and father proved themselves unfit for the task of parenting. It was Auntie Allison who was there for the great milestones in Rosie's life, who taught her how to live in the world. She was struck down when Rosie was only 12. Brain aneurysm. Might as well have been struck by lightning. Might as well have been yanked off the world by the hand of God. For months, if not years, after Aunt Allison died, Rosie continued to feel her. She would be going about her day, walking down the hall or reading in her room, when a chill would touch at her shoulder and she would pause. The air would grow heavy, the feeling of being watched would become all-consuming, and though when she turned there would inevitably be nothing there, Rosie remained all the same strong in her convictions. Aunt Allison was with her still. But even so, it never would have occurred to her to try and catch a ghost. It seemed wrong, somehow. When the city was transported to the land of the black sun and the gray slate sky, there was both the shared mass suffering and the smaller individual hurts, pains as unique as snowflakes. For Rosie Jackson, it was the loss of this feeling that hurt the most, even worse than the sudden paucity of running water or cable television or various hygiene products. She no longer felt that observing presence, and the want of it made her feel that much more alone. She adapted, as people do. Along with the other citizens of the city, she found replacements for running water, cable television, and yes, even those particular products. Yet the persistent loneliness she felt without her guiding presence never truly went away. It settled down to a muted throb that she was able to abate by staying busy. 
She devoted much of her time to working at St. Peter's Hospital. She was not alone in seeking to help, but she was one of the few able to give over as much time as she did. Most people, even those with strong stomachs and strong constitution, needed breaks from the kinds of work that was demanded in the city beneath the black sun. There were bad injuries. There were worse deaths. But such horrors only seemed to roll off Rosie Jackson's back. Death held no mystery for her, and as such, it also held no horror. She became well-known, and largely well-liked, although there were those who were put off by the sunniness of her disposition, and still others who begged her to tell them where she got whatever it was that she was on because they were going crazy for a kick, like out of their fucking minds, like you wouldn't believe. Of all the patients she spent time with, there were none whose company she enjoyed more than Trish Madak and her daughter, Debbie. Trish suffered from an ailment of the blood, the kind of disease for which there is no cure, but there is a long and unpronounceable name. As such, the sickly woman was a more or less permanent fixture of the hospital, receiving whatever blood transfusions could be made available and doing her best to keep her head down. Men who passed her room often spoke in harsh whispers about what a waste of resources it was to keep such a useless commodity alive and around, for clearly the woman would never get better and was just a drain on them all. Trish heard every whisper. But despite these sneers, despite all the odds, she did begin to show improvement. Real improvement. Consistent improvement. She was feeling about the best she ever had. She was even beginning to make plans for finding a residence outside the hospital for her and her daughter, Debbie. But it was while she was out looking for a new place that the kaiju came. Rosie Jackson was minding Debbie when the evacuation orders began crying down the hall. Rosie scooped the girl up and carried her into the sewers along with the rest of the hospital's fleeing population. She assumed that Trish would join them soon. Of this, she assured Debbie. For all the terror and chaos of that day, the St. Peter's administration kept people organized, allowing families and loved ones to track each other down with relative ease once the stomping stopped. But no matter how long Rosie Jackson spent scanning the passerby in the sewer, Trisha's face was never among them. She never found them. Dust clouds coated the city for days. When they finally settled, there was no telling how many had gotten lost within that haze, left to wander. Debbie wept for her mother, but Rosie Jackson remained with the girl, comforting her through the longest hours of sorrow. Slowly, the child's heart began to mend. Until, at last, something wandered clear of the haze.
The first inkling that Rosie Jackson had that something was wrong came when she was summoned by Everett McHugh, the de facto teacher to the children of the refugee group, and by extension, the sewer at large. What had begun as McHugh's attempt to entertain children for an hour or so while the adults palavered over their next move had become an informal school as the group fortified their position, as the children kept coming back, and as eventually the sewer tribe began sending their own young, green of skin and pale of eyes, to share in the education. So what if she talks to herself? Rose replied to his first concern. Lots of kids talk to themselves. Everett McHugh rubbed at the carving of a tooth around his neck, a nervous gesture. Lots of kids talk to themselves, yeah, he said. But the thing about Debbie is that, well, he let the tooth carving drop. See, when kids talk to themselves, it's more like a running monologue. But Debbie, when Debbie does it, he trailed off again. When Debbie does it what? Rosie demanded. Everett McHugh shook his head. It's as if someone is talking back to her. Rosie Jackson found this disquieting enough, but she did not begin to contemplate the poaching of phantasmic forces until a couple weeks later, when the incident of the rubber ball occurred. The ball in question had long been Debbie's favorite, not that she had many toys to go around. The girl had discovered the ball quite by chance as she toddled after her mother in the early days beneath the black sun, and she had held it tightly ever since. It was a red ball, the size of your clenched fist, and emblazoned with a gold star. Though the red of the ball was discolored and streaked from who knows how many years of bouncing and throwing, the star shone just as brightly as it must have when first painted. As time passed, a game involving the ball evolved between mother and daughter. Because Trish was so tied to one hospital room, Debbie would attempt to cheer her mother up by hiding the ball somewhere in the room and teasing her mother to try and find it. Trish knew where it was each time, as stealth is rarely a regular feature for the average six or seven year old, but she always made a great show of seeming bamboozled as she hunted for the thing. It sent Debbie into hysterics every time. Every time. Until the day Debbie hit the ball in Trish's coat pocket where it remained when she went out, until the day the kaiju came. For much of their time together, Rosie Jackson was unsure whether it was better or worse for Debbie to be without that red ball emblazoned with a gold star. On the one hand, she often saw Debbie casually reach for the object, only to be thrown out of sorts when it was not close at hand only to be thrown down some dark well of sorrow as she remembered just where the ball had gone and all that vanished with it. But on the other hand, those moments grew fewer and farther between as time passed, and Rosie Jackson began to consider that perhaps it was best that the ball was gone, rather than haunting the child as a brightly colored totem of all that had been stolen from her. Indeed. Rosie Jackson had not given the ball much thought for quite a while before the night when Debbie shook her awake and whispered, Something is here. The city beneath the black sun does not afford one much time for grogginess, and so within seconds, Rosie had snapped awake and produced the knife that she slept with under her pillow. She pulled Debbie close and switched on the lantern she kept close to hand. 
The lantern light threw up tall shadows from the sleeping bodies surrounding the pair, this being a well-habitated patch of the sewer. From around them came snatches of murmurs, bodies shifting within sleeping bags and under blankets, and the occasional quiet moan. Rosie Jackson whispered to Debbie, Where? The girl's eyes were huge and bright in the lantern light. She pointed to a patch of shadow that the curve of the sewer protected from the revealing light of the lantern. It was a dark in which she could drown, not wanting to make any sudden movements that might agitate whatever predator could even now be coiling itself ready to attack. Rosie Jackson moved her hand towards the lantern. Slowly, oh so slowly, she took handle in hand and began to raise it. She could feel Debbie pressing closer to her chest, the girl's heart pounding. She could feel her own heart slamming hard against her ribs. The hand gripping the knife grew slick with sweat. The lantern creaked as Rosie Jackson aimed it towards the shadow. Nothing. Bland concrete and empty air. Both Rosie and Debbie exhaled the girl relaxing her grip on the woman. It must have been a dream, Rosie Jackson said. Yes, agreed the girl, a dream. From out of the dark, there came a thump, thump, thump. Something cold and solid came to rest on the sleeping bag covering them. Debbie gave out a choking sob and flung herself against Rosie Jackson. For her part, Rosie whipped the lantern forward in one hand while the other brandished the knife. But there was nothing there to attack. Only a rubber ball, faded red and emblazoned with a gold star. Now, there are any number of options available to a person when an event such as this occurs in a way such as that. They may uproot themselves and their loved ones and go elsewhere in the hopes that whatever source is behind the strangeness, it is fixed in place and unable to pursue. This approach has had mixed results, it must be said. Still others would seek out some kind of logical explanation. This too is a strategy that has been known to work on occasion. Belief in the paranormal is often the fuel that the paranormal thrives upon, and cutting it off, even with an obstinate, stubborn refusal to see that which was directly in front of you, has been known to do the trick. But Rosie Jackson decided at once that the only real course of action, really, was to ensnare spirit. Clearly, she reasoned, Trish Madak was caught in some kind of terrible purgatory. Clearly, she was reaching out through the veil between life and death 
in the hopes of making some kind of contact with her daughter and her daughter's caretaker. Clearly, the universe, in all its horrific unknowability, had decided that one of its infinite ellipses deserved to be rounded off with an actual punctuation mark. The only real question was how. Before the city fell, Rosie Jackson had read up on communing with the dead, consuming every book and every website yet printed. She'd attended at least a dozen seances, even during one especially charged happening, began to feel the chill of possession crawl up her spine and down her arms, the visitor seeking purchase within her skin. The circle had been broken before Rosie Jackson could be completely taken over, before she'd even so much as learn the spirit's name and what it wanted. This was one of her great regrets in life. Unfortunately, none of the materials she would need to do a proper seance properly were readily available in the city, least of all in the sewer, which none of the refugees were eager to leave even a few months after the kaiju's second rampage. Things were wilder than ever up above, especially as there continued to be murmurs of mounting conflict between those comfortable inside the Mandrake's keep and those locked outside. But Rosie Jackson was a determined sort, and she kept asking around until someone suggested a name to her, a name she had not heard or thought of in a while. The owner of the name, she was told, had taken themselves deeper into the sewer than any of the other refugees, past even the barriers that the sewer tribe set for themselves. Rosie Jackson dropped Debbie off with Sanjeet and Bajoya lingering just long enough to make sure that Debbie was happily socializing with the other girls and their dog before she set off, taking only her flashlight and her knife. Her trek was uneventful, though the going was often slow as the tunnels curved and sloped and occasionally climbed. The sewers, you see, were warping. Had anyone thought to measure their length, they would also have found that the sewers were growing longer sprouting new tunnels the way roots dig deeper into soil. Rosie Jackson, unaware of this, continued onward until she began to see the sigils chalked onto the walls of the tunnel. She wiped her forehead, suddenly feeling a pounding headache. She pressed forward, only to be struck with sudden pain in her stomach. She braced herself against the wall of the sewer, not sure whether to vomit or collapse or collapse into her own vomit. The sick feeling suddenly abated, and when Rosie Jackson recovered herself, she realized she was no longer alone in the sewer, in the dark. A man stood a little ways away from her, wearing an expression somehow both bashful and aggrieved. One sleeve was rolled up around his fist, and it was with this that he had wiped one of the sigils away from the wall. I've been looking for you, Rosie Jackson said. The man, small of frame, long of beard, shrugged. This meant nothing to him. I need your help, she tried again. The man turned to go. Mr. Mayhew, please! He froze, as if the name itself exercised some terrible power over him. What? he said, voice harsh from disuse. I told you people leave me alone, so leave. I can't do that, she protested. 
Listen, Mr. Mayhew said. I'm no good to anyone. The part of me that was worth anything to other people won't be seen ever again. Get away from me. For you're the only one who can help. Rosie Jackson insisted. Help you with what? Mr. Mayhew replied, impatient. I need to catch a ghost, she said. Mr. Mayhew raised his face and met her eyes for the first time. You... You want a what? She explained her need to him, and then she explained it again, then one last time. When Mr. Mayhew at last seemed satisfied, he escorted her into what he described as his laboratory. It looked like no lab Rosie Jackson had ever seen or imagined, being little more than a tent festooned with writings and drawings, and writings that coded drawings and drawings that seemed to become their own form of writing. I'm still unclear, Mr. Mayhew said, as to why you would seek me out for a task such as this. I was told that you're a man who knows a thing or two about ghosts, Rosie Jackson replied. Mr. Mayhew scoffed as he cleared some clutter to make a seat for her. Once she was seated, it became clear to both parties how awkward it was for him to be positioned over her in this way, but there were no more seats and it would have been even more awkward for her to rise or him to lower. And so. Mr. Mayhew powered right through. We, we have to first ask ourselves, what even is a ghost? Is it a tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again? Or something dead that seems to be alive? Perhaps a ghost is only an emotion, suspended in time like an insect trapped in amber. I suppose yes, Miss Jackson. I have made a practice of studying the ghosts and other entities that walk this city, but I am no closer to knowing or being able to describe their full nature. So you see, I am quite unable to help you. But there must be something, Rosie Jackson protested. There has to be. I, I don't know, rules and stuff. There is not, Mr. Mayhew said, simply. Then, then why do you waste your time fiddling with things you never hope to solve, she asked. The hair above his lip twitched, and Rosie Jackson belatedly realized was a smile. I lack the resolve to find a more permanent solution to my boredom, he said. Rosie Jackson gaped at him. All I've been hearing, she began, for days now, have been stories about about what you and your friend, the, the big red fellow, got up to. All the miracles you made possible. All the people you helped. Why can't you help now? Because this is impossible, Mr. Mayhew protested. But at the reference to his old companion, he had noticeably set up. Catching a ghost? 
don't you realize how many people have spent how many years on exactly that? Why on earth should we fare any better? Well, for starters, we're not on earth, Rosie Jackson said. This was an irritatingly valid point, which Mr. Mayhew acknowledged as such. And besides, Rosie Jackson went on, our ghost is already reaching out to us. She gave Debbie her favorite rubber ball back. Mr. Mayhew had been shaking his head, but at this, he froze. What, what do you mean, he said. It gave back a ball? Sure, Rosie Jackson replied. Debbie had put the ball in Trish's coat pocket, and the other night, Trish gave it back. She, she, you, this ball, you actually held it? Yes, I did. And it, it remained? Yeah, Debbie still had it when I left. Mr. Mayhew stopped listening. He frantically began to try to gather up papers while stuffing himself into a coat, a feat that would have been impossible even if he possessed another set of limbs, double-jointed. Rosie Jackson once again was agape. Eh, excuse me, she said. Then again, with more force, he stared at her as if trying to recall just who she was. What, she said, is the matter? We need to get Debbie right away. Mr. Mayhew declared. Why? And then Rosie Jackson felt her own inner panic reach simmer. Because, Mr. Mayhew said, whatever is communicating to her is not the dead. day was only just beginning when Rosie Jackson and Mr. Mayhew burst into the chamber where the refugees kept camp. Bleary eyes met their searching own, groggy voices saying, Mayhew? Is that? Or, Rosie, what are you? But there was no time for that, not at all. Rosie and Mayhew vaulted over prone bodies, pivoted past mobile ones until they reached the patch held by Sanjeet, Bajoya, and their wards. Rosie Jackson saw Sanjeet, saw Bajoya, saw three sleeping bags occupied by only two girls. She grabbed Sanjeet by the shoulders. Debbie, where is Debbie? She, she was just here, he said, confused. Not even a half hour ago. She woke up and complained about a bad dream. We talked for a little, and then she drifted off again. Only a half hour, Rosie Jackson was past him now, scurrying from patch to patch. Debbie, where is Debbie? No one had seen her. A few claimed to have heard her awaken and speak to Sanjeet, while a few others claimed to have heard her speaking shortly thereafter. They had not been able to make out the words, but the girl's bright and happy tone had put all fears and concerns to rest. At her extreme ends, 
Rosie Jackson turned back to Miss Mayhew. What do we... The question trailed off. Mr. Mayhew had stripped to the waist and now stood surrounded by his former friends and neighbors, all in some manner of surprised genuflection. In his hand, he held a tooth. Not a carving like those worn by McHugh and others. A proper tooth, twisted and shining and sharp. After only a flicker of hesitation, Mr. Mayhew drove the tooth into his forearm. There were cries and gasps and blood. But while the cries rose, while the gasps rang, the blood did not fall. It climbed from the wound, curling and twining in the air like crimson silk. Sweat poured from Mr. Mayhew's brow as he raised his other hand and began to speak. He spoke in the language of stone, in the words of the wind, in the speech of the grave. As he spoke, the blood began to vibrate and began to pull until with a hideous tearing sound, the blood parted to reveal an oval portal. Inside, two figures could be seen clutching one another, one tall and one short. The tall figure turned to regard the whole in the world. She, and it was a she, of this there was no doubt, was a withered wraith with dried flesh clutching at hollow bones. Her eyes were sunken pits in which no light tremored. But it was the other figure that drew Rosie Jackson's eye, that drew gasps and moans from the onlookers. For the other figure was Debbie. With one hand, she held the red ball with a gold star emblazoned on the side. With the other, she clutched at her mother. Debbie, Rosie Jackson cried. Debbie, no. The wraith leaned close and spoke into Debbie's ear. The girl giggled and held on just a little tighter. Red mist rose about their feet, climbing higher until it was a curtain through which could only be discerned a single shadowed figure, which drew away and away and then was gone. Mr. Mayhew let his hand fall. Rosie Jackson fell with it, too anguished even to weep. She allowed herself to be blanketed and led to a fire. While the crowd busied around Rosie Jackson, Mr. Mayhew made to slip away. You said it wasn't the dead, Rosie said, halting all hustle and every bustle. Mr. Mayhew froze as well. Yes, he offered at last. Then, Rosie said, what was she? Mr. Mayhew stared at the ground, 
aware that every eye was on him. She was, she is, a mother was all he could come up with. Rosie Jackson sank into herself and the communal caretaking resumed. This time, Mr. Mayhew made good his escape. Or he would have had the tunnel leading out of camp not been blocked by a familiar face. Priya, he said. Priya Patel's white teeth flashed in the dark. That was some show, she said. Mr. Mayhew shrugged. It didn't do any good. The girl is gone. I couldn't do anything. That's as may be, Priya Patel said. What if I told you there was another girl? And for her, you could still do something. Mr. Mayhew stared at her. What are you talking about? Priya Patel unhooked something from her belt. The metal seemed to shimmer and shift in the dim light of the sewer. But when it solidified, Mr. Mayhew knew at once what it was and who it belonged to. Priya Patel twirled the sickle blade. We're getting Cassandra back. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Now available on Spotify. I, I, I. Yeah, we're on Spotify. All of us are on Spotify. Not only Black Sun Dispatches, but the Cinepunks Podcast itself, The Mandate, Horror Business, Wine and Cheese, and all the other great Cinepunks programming uh, is now available. Not only where you are you getting them, but also on Spotify. So please spread the word. Please rate and review all the shows on iTunes with super positive reviews. Please spread the word so as many people as possible listening to all these great, great shows that we have available. In addition, you can go to Cinepunks website, cinepunks.com, and there's tons of great writing, including a new article every day of the week for uh, the Halloween season called Cineween. Uh, all Cinepunks program is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, which you can find online. The, their clothing is great. I'm wearing a bunch of it myself. Uh, it's super comfortable, super affordable. That's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. If you'd like to sponsor, if you would like to be a sponsor for Black Sun Dispatches or other Cinepunks programming, uh, hit up our portrayal on the website. We'd all really, really appreciate it. You can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show, and you follow me on Twitter at the True Brennan F. Again, that's at Black Sun Show and at the True Brennan F. The music for is Winter by E.L. Heath, and the Black Sun Dispatches logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. So I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode, and I hope you tune in next week at seven days for Do You Want to Build a Scarecrow? It's gonna be freaky. Thanks, everybody. Bye.